The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au John chapter 7, verse 1 to 13. Um, From verse 1, After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea, because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea, so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, The right time for me has not yet come. For you, for you any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify that what it does is evil. You go to the feast. I am not yet going up. To, the, to this feast, because for me the right time has not yet come. Verse 9, having said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, not public, public, publicly, but in secret. Now at the feast, the, Jewish, the Jews were watching for him and asking, where is that man? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. Well, good morning, everybody. Take your Bibles, please, to the book of Ephesians and chapter 3. We'll read this morning from verse 1 down to verse uh, 21 for context, but we're going to focus really on verses 14 and 15 alone this morning. So reading from verse 1 of chapter 3 of the book of Ephesians. It says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ 
and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart of my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray, shall we? Loving Father, as we come again with the word of God open before us, we would join with David in that psalm that Poovan read. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. And Father, we pray as we would consider this great topic of prayer and we realize immediately how much we fail and how much we need your help. Father, we pray that all that we say and all that we do this morning, and Father, all that we say as we go from this place would be to the honor and the glory of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, O oh God, that he would be exalted above all things, above everything, that his name would be lifted up, that we would see him and see him alone. And Father, we ask you for help this morning. Lord, it staggers the mind to consider that you would allow weak and failing lips of clay to speak the wonders and the truths and the mysteries of Christ, the unfathomable riches of Christ, as Paul said it. And Father, we ask you for your help. Teach us, O God. Inspire us, O God, to live lives of prayer and communion with you. And Father, we ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. How do you begin, how do you introduce a message, a sermon on the topic of prayer? I wrestled last night and this morning driving here trying to think of stories or incidences or accounts that I might use as an introduction into the topic of prayer. But what kept coming to mind again and again as I considered it was the different scenes from the Lord's life and different verses in the New Testament about prayer. And so what I want to do just for a few minutes is just read you some verses uh, sketching my way through the New Testament specifically about the Lord Jesus and then some of the apostles and the early church in prayer. So listen, and if you can, in your mind's eye, as I'm reading the verses, envision the Lord Jesus as he is going through these different 
uh, times of prayer. The Bible says in Mark 1.35, in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. After a long day of ministry, tired as he surely would have been, he got up while it was still early, stepped over the sleeping bodies and made his way out to pray. In Luke 5, the Bible says, But the news about him was spreading even further and further, and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. In Luke 6, it says, It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. In Luke 11, it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. In Matthew 14, after he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. Matthew 26, and Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. In Acts chapter 1, this is after Jesus has gone back to glory and the disciples are in the upper room. The Bible says, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. In Acts 2, 42, at the end of that Pentecost day, Luke describes the church and he says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. In Acts 4, 31, the Bible says, When they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. When they had prayed... I never forget being in a prayer meeting and we were in a Bible study and we had just finished studying this verse and we went to a time of prayer and halfway through the prayer time I thought that I would maybe had taken some medication and it was affecting me because the whole room was shaking and my eyes popped open. Everybody else's eyes were open and the whole room was shaking. It was an earthquake. It was the most amazing thing in the world. And you say God hasn't got a sense of humor. We were studying prayer. And the room being shaken, and God just said, here, I'll give you a little taste. And he shook the room. But don't miss the point. They were continually devoting themselves to prayer. In Acts chapter 6, this 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. In Ephesians 6, Paul writes, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. In Colossians 1, he says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Colossians 4, he says, Devote yourselves to prayer keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. 
In 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2, Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. James 5, some of you know this verse well. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Prayer. I don't think if you asked any person in the church, pastor, elder, deacon, anybody, how's your prayer life? I think bar none, we would all drop our heads slightly and say, well... It could use work. It's true. I confess that even as um, as somebody who is called to devote himself to prayer and the ministry of the word, my own failings in the area of prayer. And yet when you read the stories of the New Testament, you read the lives of these great men of God, they were men of prayer. I think I told you once already, Martin Lloyd-Jones, his wife, said of him after he had died, my husband, this great preacher, one of the greatest preachers in the English language, him and Spurgeon would probably vie for the top place. His wife said of him, my husband was first of all a man of prayer. Spurgeon said, I can do what I do because my people pray for me. It's prayer. Jesus was a man of prayer, seeking often to be alone with his Father in prayer, communing with the Godhead. The early church was marked by a devotion to prayer. Paul and the other New Testament writers were men of prayer, calling us to a devotion of prayer. Now, I didn't plan it this way. I had other things come in and messages and Christmas and New Year's and all of that. But we land here on the first Sunday of January in 2018 in this passage. This is one of the highest levels of recorded prayer in the scriptures as Paul stops to recount his prayers for the Ephesian people. And I think by extension, us also. This month, we're going to focus on prayer. And I had planned to discuss this with the elders on Thursday night and the deacons. But the first week in February, we're going to call the whole church to a time, a week of prayer. But we're going to use the Sundays between now, except for the 21st when I'll be away. We're going to use these Sunday messages to focus on what prayer is and how we are to pray and why we are to pray and motives and encouragements to pray. And then as we launch into the first school term and all the Bible studies and all the activities of the church wind up for a new year, we're going to call all of us together to pray. Whether we pray at home, we pray here as groups, we pray whatever, we're going to encourage you all to be in time of prayer. I want to give you this morning, give us all, not just give you, give me too, four encouragements to prayer. I want us to see from verses 14 and 15 this. Number one, God's gracious work to save us is our motive to pray. It drove Paul to prayer, and we'll see that. Number two, God's gracious regard for humble, for the humble, gives us our attitude for prayer. We pray in humility. Thirdly, God's gracious adoption of us as his children gives us our freedom to pray. We pray to one who is our father. And fourthly, God's gracious sovereignty over all mankind gives us our hope in prayer. And we'll look at those four. So first of all, God's gracious work to save us, 
sorry, God's gracious work to save us gives us our motive for prayer. Notice the text, verse 14. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. What reason is Paul talking about? It's his motive. It's what drives him. It gives him the reason why he's praying. He says, for this reason, I pray. And he sketches out this beautiful prayer and all the things he asks God for. Well, what is this reason? Now, there's a bunch of options, and, I, and scholars are a little bit divided over how you could actually say which reason it is that he's praying. So I want to give you four of them, and the last one is the one I think is the one that makes the most sense. So first of all, in 3 and verse 13, he says... I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf. For this reason, I bow my knees. And some have said, this reason is simply he doesn't want them to lose heart. And my answer is, that's a great reason to pray, but I don't think that's all of it. I think it includes that, but there's more to it. Notice back in 3 and verse 1, he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and my Bible has a little dash and then Paul launches off in this long 13-verse uh, little sidetrack, and he gets through all that, talking about the mystery of Christ and so on. Then he comes back at 3 and verse 14, and he picks up his thought, oh yeah, for this reason, and he keeps talking about his prayer. So the, this reason could be everything just before 3 and verse 1, in which he talks about the mystery of Christ in three, or sorry, 2 verses 13 and 14 and so on. So the final section of chapter 2, the Jews and Gentiles, that is an option. And the last option, number 4, is for this reason is a summary statement that refers to everything Paul has written so far. For these reasons. But when you see how these reasons all fit under one heading... You can see why he would say for this reason, not these reasons. Okay, so it's a little bit complex grammar, but basically he's using for this reason as a summary statement to say everything I've said up to this point, here's why I'm praying. So what has he said up to this point? If you go take your Bible, flip over a couple of pages or scroll back in your iPhone, however you want to do it, you notice in verses 3 to 6, of chapter 1, it's God's gracious election of His people to be saved. In verses 7 through 12, Paul is talking about God's gracious salvation, which was purchased with Christ's blood. He died to save us. In verses 13 and 14, it's God's gracious sealing and empowering us with the filling of the Holy Spirit. And then in 2 verses 4 to 10, it's God's gracious making us alive. We who once were spiritually dead in sins and trespasses, God's made alive. That's God's work. And then 2 verses 11 to 22, it's God's gracious reconciling of Jew and Gentile together into one body to God in Christ. And then verses 1 to 13 of chapter 3, it's God's gracious call of Paul and others to minister and preach the mysteries of Christ and the unsearchable riches of Christ. And you say, what's the one thing that fits all those things? And it's this. It is God's work 
to save us that summarizes all those things. He's choosing us. He's saving us. He's filling us with His Spirit. He's making us alive. He's reconciling Jew and Gentile into one body. It all fits under one heading of God's work in us to save us. And Paul could say, listen, for this reason of God's work for us, And God's work in us and God's work through us, I bow my knees to pray. Now notice just now just just take a little preview for next week of what he asks for. Notice in verse 16 he says that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit and inner man. He's asking for them to be strengthened. In verse 17, he's asking that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. And in verse 18, he's asking the God that they would be able to comprehend and know deeply the love of Christ, the breadth and the height and the width and the depth and all of it. So what he's asking for is God's work in salvation. He's asking that it might bear fruit and be in the lives of the Ephesians who are reading this. Paul is making what all of us should do, or he's doing what all of us should do. He is not making the assumption that everybody in the Ephesian church or in any church gathering is truly a believer. He's saying, you know what? There might be some who don't know Christ yet. And so for this reason, for the work of God to save souls, I will bow my knees before the Father and I will plead that God would strengthen them with the Holy Spirit in their inner men, that Christ may dwell in their hearts by faith and that they might know the love of Christ and comprehend it and not just know it here, but know it here. So his motive to pray is the work of God. It's all the work of God. Paul was motivated by God's work in salvation to pray for them. But surely, Paul, being a really good Reformed theologian, I'm joking, he wasn't. He was just an ordinary apostle. But knowing God's work, surely he would have said, well, I know for sure that God's going to do that work. I'm convinced of it. I know God's sovereign. Which raises the classic question. If God truly is sovereign, which is what Paul has been arguing all the way from chapter 1 and verse 3 all the way through to here, why does he pray? What's the point of praying if God is sovereign? Well, we pray because Christ, the early church, and Paul, they all prayed. They commanded us to pray, and they set the example of prayer. Do you think Jesus needed to pray? He was the son of the living God. He had intimate fellowship with his father. And yet the Bible records over and over again that Jesus went off by himself to a place and he spent time with his father, communing with him in prayer. Second reason we pray. We pray because ministry as believers in Christ calls us to both minister the gospel and pray for fruit from that ministry. So I preach the gospel. I preach and tell the people as much as I can about the Lord Jesus Christ. I teach the Bible for all I'm worth. And on my drive home, I say, Lord, please take that word of God and make it take root in their lives and in my life. Make it bring forth fruit to the glory of the living God. He's praying that his ministry might bear fruit. But the best answer for what, if God is sovereign, why pray is this. It's simple, but I'll read it slowly and try and get it in. We pray 
Because God in his sovereignty included our prayers and his answers to them in the accomplishment of his work in the lives of men and women. I'll read it again. We pray because God in his sovereignty included our prayers, our asking God for things, and his answers to them in the accomplishment of his work in the lives of men and women. We pray, we plead with God to save somebody, and we share the gospel, and we plead with God to save them. We believe God is sovereign, absolutely. But we still pray for God to do it. And I'm convinced that the sovereignty of God includes both our prayers and his answers and that guy's, that person's salvation. We're going to talk more about this a bit later. We pray because God is working in the lives of us all. From salvation and justification all the way through sanctification until the end and glorification. We pray because God works. It's like owning the, the most powerful engine in the world. Uh, oh, this is embarrassing. Um, um, in America, there's a show called Tool Time. Or, uh, <laughs> some of you laughing. Some of you have seen it. And, and Tim Taylor, right? Tim the Tool Man. He's always talking about more power, right? Arr, 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 more power. And so he has gas-powered uh, food blenders. And he has rocket-powered lawnmowers. And he's always talking about more power. And it's one thing to have tremendous power available to us. In the workshop I worked in, there was these great machines. Um, some of them were grinders. They had 600 volts and 600 amps. And you could walk up to that machine, you could flip the switch, and nothing happens. And you're flipping the switch away like mad. But what you fail to realize is that the power is disconnected. There's tremendous power there available. But when you walk over and you turn the big, huge master switch on, and you hear that and you know all the electric motors are coming to life and you flip that switch and that massive grinder begins to spin its arc and wheel and move and you know there's tremendous power sitting right in front of you. Prayerlessness in the life of a believer is like trying to get work done without turning on the master switch. It's, there's power there. God can do all kinds of things, but God desires and delights for us to pray. And God in his sovereignty uses both our prayers to him and the answers he gives back to us as part of his accomplishment of his will. Pray, brothers and sisters, because God is working. Pray and plead with God. That he would do his work in your life and the other people around you today. There are sometimes, I don't know how to pray for you. I've, all I know, everything is going great in your life. I haven't talked to you for a couple of days. Sometimes a simple thing I pray is, Lord, do what you need to do in that person's life today to finish the work of sanctification in them. He'll do tomorrow's work tomorrow and Friday's work on Friday, but he's doing today's work today. And sometimes we just need to pray and ask God, do your work. Paul's motive to pray for this reason is because of the work of God that's being done in the lives of believers. The second thing is this. God's gracious regard for the humble gives us our attitude in prayer. What was Paul's attitude when he prayed? Notice what he says in 3 and verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees. Now bowing the knees in Eastern culture was a posture of humility and earnestness before God. 
a physical submission of body and soul together before God, a position of surrender and submission and weakness as a defeated foe before the victor. It was a position of worship and adoration. Now, it wasn't like we do, like on your knees. I'd show you, but both my knees are shot, so I'm not, if I get down, I might not get up again. <laughs> but what they would do is instead of going just on their knees sort of upright, they would put both their knees and their forehead right on the ground so they are bent completely over. It was a posture of complete submission and prostrateness before the one that they were kneeling before. It was a completely defenseless position, a submission and a trust in the one we are kneeling before. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees. He describes to his own soul in a physical way the height of the difference between God and worshiper, between prayer and prayee. He is exalted, but we are submitted. He's lofty, but we are base. He's majestic and glorious and enthroned and holy, but we are dust before him. It describes the respect of the prayer for God to whom he prays. But notice something else. It's not an enforced position for the believer. It's a voluntary expression of love. Dear old Uncle Jack, which I've told you a little bit about, the fellow that took time with a young carpenter like me to teach him how to study. He used to tell me, Nelson, there are days I go into my, my office at 2 and 3 in the morning. He said, you know, Nelson, when you get to be my age, you don't sleep so well. I said, okay, I must be getting old then. And he said, you know, I go into my office and I get down on my knees behind my desk with my Bible open in front of me. And I spend an hour or two or even three hours he said, oh, don't very often get up and my face isn't wet with tears as I've prayed and wept before the Lord. He didn't go in there and bow on his knees before the Lord because somebody said, you must. He went there and he bowed before the Lord because he recognized and exalted God in his heart. And he said, I'm coming here and I know that you are so much higher than me. And so I must bow my knees. Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father. Paul's attitude before God to whom he prayed was humility. He said in Acts chapter 20, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which come upon me through the plots of the Jews. I served the Lord with all humility. He was a humble man. What about Moses? He was called the meekest man on all the earth, he used to go out to a tent and there he would commune with God face to face as a man communes with his friend. There was a humility there. The scriptures teach us that we must be humble before our God. Micah 6, 8, we used to sing this in youth group. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk Humbly with your God. He told us, walk humbly with me. James 4 verse 10 says, humble yourself in the presence of God and he will exalt you. God hears the prayers of the humble. Why? Because the prayers of the humble say, only God can answer my prayer. Only God can do the thing that I require. I am hum I'm humble, I'm but he is exalted. 
I'm base, but he's lifted up. God's gracious regard for the humble gives us our attitude. I love Isaiah 66, verse 2. I think I've read it to you a number of times. It says, um, um, I love it so much, I just can't remember right off the top of my head. Take your Bibles. Now you know when you're getting old, because your memory just sort of kicks out at the worst possible time. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. There it is. But to this one I will look, he who is humble and contrite in heart and who trembles at my word. Humble. This is the one that God turns all of his favor towards and looks on with blessing and with favor and delights to answer the one who is humble. He rejects the proud, but he regards the humble. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago in Mary's prayer about God rejecting the proud but having grace toward the humble. Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father. He humbled himself when he was praying. Humility is the attitude with which we pray before God. It's not absolutely necessary to kneel. Brothers and sisters, you can pray while you're driving your car. Eyes open, preferably. You can pray while you're at work, at your desk. You can pray while you're in your workshop. You can pray while you're sitting down in a room. You can pray with friends. You can play, pray in absolute silence and complete solitude. But we pray in humility. We pray whether kneeling or lying prostrate on the floor. I heard a story about A.W. Toza, one of the great preachers of the last century. And that he was told his secretary as he came into the office of the church every morning that he was not to be disturbed from 9 o'clock to 12 o'clock under any circumstances. And one day there was some major emergency and she went to open the door to try and get a hold of him. And she pushed the door open and she froze. And very quietly she closed the door again. You see, A.W. Toza was lying face down on the floor and she found out later that he would lie there on the floor face down before God in prayer for three full hours. That's how he began his day, every day. No, it's not necessary to kneel. No, it's not necessary to lie on the floor. But you know, brothers and sisters, there is something very humbling when we get down on our knees before God. And we cry out to God and, we, and our, our body posture says to our soul, we cannot help ourselves. We need the help of God. It's humility that's our attitude that God requires. Number three, God's gracious adoption of us as his children gives us our freedom in prayer. Notice what he says again in verse 14. For this reason, excuse me, I bow my knees before the Father. Paul does not say, my father, rather he uses a very interesting phrase in Greek. He uses something called an anarthrous noun, which means it emphasizes the height and the value of that noun by the way it's described. So we would say, he's not a pitcher, he's the pitcher. You know, he's not a violinist, he's the violinist. And by using that the, we emphasize that one element out of a group of all other elements the same and say, this is the epitome. He's the extreme example. He's the highest example. He says that he is the greatest, most magnificent, most gracious, most loving father of all. When he says, um, I bow my knees before the father. 
Paul's use of that definite article reminds us God our Father is in a class above and beyond all others. He is not any father. He is the Father. The term also indicates a relationship. Now, to put it in human terms, a man can be a man and not be a father if he doesn't have any children. He's no less of a man. He's still a man. He's just not a father because he has no children. But a father has one who has children. There is a relationship between him and offspring. The term father, Paul uses, reminds us that we're adopted into God's family. We are his sons and daughters. We are his children. God is a God to be worshipped, adored, and obeyed. But God is also a father to whom we can flee for help, for care, for love, and for kindness. We remember that Paul has described this relationship in 1 verse 5. He said this in Ephesians 1 5. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. John in his gospel said something similar. He said, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Adopted children are not born of flesh and blood like natural children are. They're born out of a desire of the parents to take one not born to them and regard it as fully their own. They're born out of the will of the parents. God, in the same way, adopted us as his children. He chose us even though we had rebelled against him. He chose us and saved us by Jesus Christ dying on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He chose us, he saved us, and he also adopted us into his family. And it was an irrevocable decision. God adopted us and he will not, he cannot, he refuses to unadopt us. Jesus used a phrase in the book of Luke, I think it is, where he says that we are in the Father's hands and none can take them out of his grasp. We are fully his. And that adoptive situation, that parent-child, bad way, father-child relationship that we have with the Father gives us tremendous freedom. If I go to my friend's house and I walk into his house and I go into his dad's office and I walk around behind the desk and I sit down in the chair and I start rifling through all the drawers and maybe I flip open the laptop and start scrolling through his files and just having a good look, getting to his banking, you know, see what he's going on. And, and his, my friend's dad walks in. There is a significant chance I will not be invited back to my friend's home. I am not free to just go into somebody else's home and somebody else's father and start helping myself to all their private things. There's no freedom there. In fact, there'd be a lot of freedom to move through the front door as fast as I possibly could because they'd probably get pretty angry at me. But you know what? As adopted sons and daughters of our father, there is a tremendous freedom to pray. We are adopted by the King of Kings. He is our Father. A freedom to come and go and enter a conversation with my Father. I can run to Him for help and He will hear me. I may come boldly, but I must never come presumptuously. I may come quickly, but I must never come disrespectfully. 
I come in humility. Absolutely. I come realizing that He is God. But I come freely because He is also my Father. I come freely into His presence and I can speak with Him. I can pour out the intimate details of my life to Him. I can plead with Him on behalf of others. You know, the coolest thing about prayer with a Heavenly Father is God our Heavenly Father never goes, I didn't know that. He knows every single detail of our lives. And I am convinced that Jesus, as He sat up on the mountaintop, and He and His Father communed in prayer, there were times when there was absolute silence as Jesus listened to His Father. And times when Jesus spoke. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we were not called into a relationship with the living God just to do the deeds, just to do the evangelism, just to do the preaching, just to come here and do this, come here and sing songs. We weren't called into a relationship just to be running around as servants. We are, but we were called into a relationship of intimate communion with God the Father. And the example of Jesus as he, as he goes up on a mountaintop, as he spends the whole night, I don't think he spent the whole night running through a list with a little, a little papyrus scroll. Okay, first of all, Peter, let's talk about him for a while, then Andrew, talk about him for a while. No, I think they went together and he just communed with his father. Much like when you get together with your family and you sit around, you just have a gentle relationship, a conversation, and there's an intimacy there. Even like a husband and wife. You can be together and spend time together. You don't have to fill every moment with words and noise and sound. You can just have a relationship, a deep communion, one with the other. The fact that He is our Father gives us great freedom to pray. I often think of the story of Esther. You know, she's a Jew. I hate that fact very well. Gets married to the king. And one day they put out a decree, all the Jews and all of the realms of the land are to be killed on one day. And, she, and her uncle comes to her, Mordecai, and says, go and see the king. Go in and talk to You're his wife. Go talk to him. And she says, you don't understand. Unless he summons me in, I cannot go. Anybody who comes unannounced, unbeckoned, unsummoned to the king can lose their head in a real way. But they pray for her, and she walks in, and the king stops, and he sees her coming in, and he does the most gracious thing in the world. He picks up his scepter, this big staff that he carries, a picture of his authority, and he extended it out to the queen, and she reached out, and she put her hand on the top of the scepter, and it was a mark of acceptance. You see, what's the picture for us? We come boldly and humbly and freely, knowing, she didn't know for sure, but we come knowing for sure that when we step into God's presence and begin to speak, He, as it were, extends a scepter to us and says, Touch, my grace is here. You can speak. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have freedom to pray because He's our Father. We come in humility. We pray because God is at work.
but we also pray in great freedom. Brothers and sisters, there is a desperate need for us to be in prayer. We have a great cause to pray because God is at work. He's at work in our lives, and I believe He's at work out there at those back doors. Come down on Saturday morning. A couple of us are going to go down there and just and start handing out tracts, engage some conversations. We'll be spending the first little bit of time here praying and pleading with God that He would open the hearts and the minds of those we'll hand a tract to, that His Word would bear fruit. Whether they ever sit foot through these doors or not is not the point. The point is to put the gospel into their hands that they might hear and respond and obey. But we start with prayer, pleading for God to do His work. Last point. God gracious, God's gracious sovereignty over all gives us hope in prayer. Notice what he says in verse number 14 and 15. We'll read them together. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Or better translation is, uh, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. Paul describes this Father to whom he and we are to pray. He's striving to give us the greatness of the person of God. He is the Father over all creation. Now, he doesn't mean Father in the same sense that we have him as an intimate Father relationship, an adopted relationship, but he is the creator of everything. And the Bible does make that analogy that God as creator is seen as father over all his creation and father over all the families of the earth. Paul is saying that because God works to save, he in humility of spirit bows his knees before the father who has adopted us as believers and from whom every person alive is included in the whole family of mankind. Okay, there's nobody who was born that it doesn't come from God's creation. God created Adam and Eve. They had two sons and probably more that are not mentioned. And the whole of mankind flowed out of those two people. If you're born, you're part of that. And because God created those first two, in a sense, by extension, he created you as well. So you're included under his fatherhood of creation. Every single person born alive had a mother and a father on this earth, except one, who is Jesus Christ. And we know he had a human mother, but no earthly father. He's the one exception, but every single other person ever born or ever will be born is part of that same one whole family of mankind of whom the father is head over all. Okay? What's this got to do with prayer? Paul and we pray to a God who is sovereign over all his creation. We plead with God to act in someone's life, and God has the right and the authority to act. Nobody's excluded from God's reach and God's grasp. I was asked um, not so long ago to go and tell someone to do something. And I had no right or authority in that person's life to do that. They would have just looked at me and said, who are you to tell me to do that? And I would have said, I'm just a pastor from over there. And they would have said, so? <laughs> okay, well, I don't really have any authority to that, so I'll just be going now, right? And I would have had to go. Because I have no right or authority to exercise in that arena. 
But God, who is sovereign over all his creation, has both the right and the authority to act in every person's life who has ever been born or ever will be born. You don't pray for John Smith and God say, oh, well, actually, he's not part of my, uh, my, little, my area, so I really can't help you with him. You have to go to someone else to help with that. No. God says, every person born is part of my area. God is sovereign over all his creation. The Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 10, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. God is sovereign over every human being. None are excluded. God is sovereign to do whatever he pleases. The Bible says in Psalm 135, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and in earth and in the seas and in all the deeps. If you, by the way, take Psalm 135, read 6, all the way down to 13. There's so much more about the same theme in there. God is sovereign to do whatever he pleases. The Bible says in Isaiah 46, Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, Listen, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God will do what he pleases with creation. Nothing is excluded. It's all in his hand and under his control. God is sovereign and he cannot be successfully opposed. Listen. Job 42, he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. In other words, no purpose of God's can be turned on its head and undone. All of God's purposes he will accomplish. The Bible says in 2 Chronicles 20, Then Jehoshaphat prayed, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand so that none can stand against you. Listen, God is sovereign. He's sovereign over all creation. I gave you a whole slew of verses on your note sheet there. You can keep looking them all up. God is sovereign over human life. He's sovereign over salvation and election and so on and so on. And the question you're probably asking is, how does this help our prayer life? How does God's sovereignty give us great hope when we pray? We pray to our God, our Heavenly Father, who has adopted us as His children, and He invites us to seek His face and pray and listen to His voice. We pray to God, who has all power to accomplish His will. I know you're still thinking, how does that help me in my prayer life? How do, how do we get hope from that? We pray to God who has absolute authority to act and intervene in his creation, human and all physical and spiritual creation. Okay, God has power and authority, none excluded. We do not pray in a sort of futile hope. We don't pray like the guy with the gambling at the roulette wheel, right? Takes his monies, he puts it down on 23 red, all his chips, and he hopes that the wheel around it goes, will come around and somehow the little ball will boom, 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 and bounce on 23 red. That's a faint, futile, and pointless hope. He's got, I don't know how many little numbers are on the, the wheel. Let's say 100 numbers. I'll make it, let's make it easy. Let's say 20 numbers. He's got one chance in 20 
that the number will land. That's a futile hope. We don't pray in that sort of futile hope. There is an ounce or a gram of assurance of success. We pray, brothers and sisters, in the certain and sure hope that God will act and will answer in accordance with his divine purposes, which are always for our good and his glory. All right? When God answers prayer, okay, let's take a horrible example. You go to the doctor, I got this horrible pain. I don't know what's going on. They do a bunch of scans up and down. Oh, they found there's a big tumor on your lungs. It says cancer. And you're praying the whole time you're waiting for the result. Please don't let it be cancer. Lord, please don't let it be cancer. And the answer comes back, it's cancer. You say, wait, how's that hopeful? How how does that work? Because we know this for an absolute certainty. God always works for our good and his glory. You're saying cancer is my good? Possibly. In fact, I would say if God gives you cancer, it is for your good and his glory. You say, how can that be? And i got to tell you, there's a little piece of me that just rises up and goes, No! That's not fair. How can me having cancer, how can this horrible situation be for my good and God's glory? Because the Bible tells me without any hesitation, God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So yes, God giving you that horrible thing is for your good and his glory. You say, I don't understand that. Nelson, walk through a cancer ward and say the same thing. If I walk through a cancer ward, I'd probably cry. But I see a believer who goes through cancer and dies, and I am absolutely convinced from Scripture that it's for their good and God's glory. Even though my puny human mind cannot always grasp it, I trust what Scripture says. So you're still asking the question, how does that give us hope? How do we pray in hope if God is sovereign? Okay, well, there's there's a catch. God does not answer positively those prayers that are not in agreement with his will. But God answers those prayers that are in agreement with his will. It might be tomorrow, it might be 30 years from now, but God will answer. Of that I'm convinced. So how do we know what's in agreement with his will? Jesus said, if you ask anything in my name, my Father will give it to you, right? That's what he said. And we run and go, Lord, Ferrari, red, Preferably with the low-profile tires and the wide rims. Lord, I, I, a raise at work. Preferably 200% higher than the other guy in my office who's such a jerk. I don't want him to have it. I'll have it. Lord, give me this. That's not what Jesus said at all. What he said when he said, when you pray in my name, he means you pray and you ask for the things that I want to give you. He said, well, how do we know what that is? Oh, well, I'll show you. There it is. We pray Scripture. 
we pray the things that God teaches us to pray for in Scripture. Brothers and sisters, this is, this is going to sound really, really nasty, but hear me out. How often do we go into prayer and so-and-so's got such a sickness? Lord, set them free from their sickness. But the reality is God gave them that sickness to teach them something for their good and his glory. And he needs that sickness to go a certain length in order for them to learn all that they need to learn. In order for them, for the goodness to be its full measure and the glory to be as glorious as it possibly could be. Does that make sense? We pray in accordance with His will. How do we find out what God's will is? We read the Scriptures. We strive to know what God is saying. Ask for these things. And I love reading Paul's prayers. You know how many times he said, Lord, set me free from the chains in this prison. No. I actually couldn't find one place where he said, set me free. I mean, there may be one. I couldn't find it. He says, Lord... Look what, he says, look what he says about them. Read verses 16 and, and 17, 18 with me. We're going to come back to this next week. But he says, he prays that he, the Father, would grant you or give you according to the riches of his glory, that's the source, the resources, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Lord, strengthen them. Take the inner man and by the power of the Holy Spirit, make it strong. Make it strong because I want to ask for something even bigger than what their little hearts can right now handle. I want to make, make their hearts strong by the power of the Spirit so that Christ may dwell in their hearts. As they are right now, they can't handle that. Lord, strengthen them so the Spirit of God can dwell in there. The Spirit of Christ can dwell in there so that they might comprehend and know the love of Christ. We'll get to this in a few weeks, but we'll give you a little preview. Um, D.L. Moody. Walking down the street. He said he was contemplating and meditating on the love of Christ. And it hit him. The majesty, the magnitude of the love of Christ. He said he literally staggered backwards and all but fell over if there wasn't a lamppost there. And he half crawled home. The love of God was so immense to D.L. Moody. And in that moment, God had allowed him to comprehend and know something in the love of Christ that was so great. Paul says, I'm praying for them, praying for you, that God would strengthen you so you can comprehend. How do we pray in agreement with God's sovereignty? We read the Scriptures. We mine the Scriptures to find out how we should pray. Brothers and sisters in Christ, one really quick practical point for you. Go home. Open your Bible. Look, if you get a search engine on your computer, look up prayers of Scripture and read through and find all those prayers and start working your way through them and praying them back to God. Some of these Old Testament saints, man, they could pray. <laughs> Paul could pray unbelievably. He knew the Lord. And God in His wisdom and His sovereignty gave us the things that are in agreement in His will so we could use them to pray. We have great hope in praying because God is sovereign. If God is not sovereign and does not have all power to accomplish whatever He pleases, we waste our time and we annoy Him by praying. 
But God is sovereign. And God has all power and he is all-knowing. We pray, brothers and sisters, in a sure and a certain hope that God, who is sovereign over all, he will answer. It's a call, this little text. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name, that he would grant you, brothers and sisters, it's a call to urgent prayer. It's a call on all of us to devoted prayer, to consistently praying. We pray, number one, because God is at work seeking and saving and sanctifying men and women. We pray in humility because God graciously hears the prayers of the humble. We pray, brothers and sisters, in great freedom because He is our Heavenly Father. And we pray in great hope because God is sovereign over all. And whatever answer He brings, we give thanks and we rejoice because it's for our good and His glory. What an amazing God we serve. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray. We'll, we'll dispense with the benediction for this morning. Let's stand and pray. Loving Father, we come before you again. And Lord, to open up the scriptures and preach the truth of God is a repetitive failure. Because no matter how much we put in, no matter how long we take, no matter how much we try and describe it and illustrate it and apply it, we can never do them justice. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for the believers here. Thank you, Father, for those prayer warriors, many of whom are unknown to their brothers and sisters in the Lord, but are faithfully praying. Father, many who can't even come out Sunday mornings for old age, but yet carry on valiant warriors in prayer. Father, again, challenge to the core to see Jesus after a long, hard day of ministry rise early in the morning to go off to a place to be alone, to speak with you and pray and seek your face. Father, I plead with you that you would do the work in us. Do your work in that you have for today in each of us to bring us a little closer to being like Jesus. Father, challenge our hearts as to both the humility with which we pray. Lord, let the language of our prayer be gracious and respectful and humble, never presumptuous, never flippant, never casual. And yet, O oh God, at the same time we rejoice, we give thanks, O oh God, for the freedom we have to pray. Not just, not, not freedom in a legal governmental sense in this country, but Father, freedom to pray because we are adopted sons and daughters of the living God. 
Oh, Father, I plead with you that you would do your work in me and in all of those standing here this morning. Father, work in us. Give us, O oh God, joy as we pray. Give us a deep love for you, a love for the Lord Jesus, and a love for each other that will do the greatest thing we can do for each other, which is to take each other to the throne of grace and plead your grace on each other. Lord, I would join with Paul, and I would pray, O oh God, that you would strengthen us with power through your Holy Spirit in our inner man's inner hearts. Father, that Christ may dwell in our hearts. Father, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have they may have the may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Father, even beyond that, Paul prayed that we would be filled up with all the fullness of God, up to all the fullness of God. Lord, these are concepts that, that are beyond our human minds to fully grasp. But Father, we know that you can take your scripture and you can answer it according to your riches in grace and in glory. Father, we would be a changed people. Father, we ask you for these things. We plead with you, O God, for help. We recognize immediately, O God, that apart from you, we can accomplish nothing. But Father, we also rejoice in the scripture. It tells us that it is you working in us both to will and to do for your good pleasure. Father, thank you for our time in the word. Thank you for our time of worship this morning. Father, we plead with you for help for those that can't be here. Lord, for the sick and the shut-in. Lord, just give them grace. Give them joy in the Lord Jesus today. We ask you all these things, Father, in the precious name of our Savior. Amen.